Welcome to Panelism, the podcast where we talk about the comics and graphic novels worth having on your shelf. I'm Taylor Trask. I'm Todd A. And uh, it's book club time again, Todd. We are uh, back with another kind of more deliberate book club episode. It's been a, a little while since our last one. Do you remember what the last book was for book club? Because I don't. I just... Oh my God! Why did you do that to me? <laughs> well, I was hoping you would, and you could you could make me uh, look bad by comparison. But we both forgot, so I'll uh... we'll just put that up on the shelf for right now. <laughs> I'm I'm curiously going back through to see yeah, if we yeah. remember. Oh, it was, uh, it was Black like Monday Murders, Volume 1 and 2. Yeah, well, that's... Yeah, it was January 29th, Black Monday Murders. You know Monday what, Murders. though? We did talk about Why Art after that in April. That's true. And we both read that. Was that. Basically, that was basically... We didn't pitch it ahead of time to give any listeners a chance to read it. So that's what why we didn't call it a book club, but... That's right. Yeah. All right. You're right. Both, yeah. Wow. Great. And that's... And, and now January feels like 18 years ago, so, gee, I mean, who knows? God, who knows what's know. happened since then? Hey, let me ask you this before we get into anything else. Have how have you been doing this summer without any movies to see in a theater? Has that has that troubled you at all? Um, I mean, no more than all the other troubling stuff about being locked down. Okay. Uh, because to me, and I think we mentioned this a little bit on our last show, um, the movies are just such a great escape for me. Yeah. And especially in summertime when um, when I have been fortunate enough where I can make some of my own freelance hours, you know, going to like an afternoon movie was just such a like treat for myself. And especially cause there's no air conditioning in my house. It's great to just go to the theater for two hours. Yeah. Um, so I miss it, but it's not like because of a lack of good content for sure. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. It, I have, I had a moment over this weekend. I, I sort of, not a, not a breakdown, but like just really hit me hard that I have been missing that experience way more than I realized. And then I was actually doing the math. The last movie I saw in a theater was rise of Skywalker in December. Oh my God. And that long. I was, oh. I thought surely I saw something in February. I was going back through my Fandango and Alamo purchases. Nope. December rise wow. of Skywalker. So it, it has been a while okay. and I, and, and, that I saw underwater the best with, movie. I know exactly. I was thinking I saw underwater with Kristen Stewart, that movie. And I just had to Google oh, okay. the release date. So that would have been January at least. I'm, Oh uh, man, what a good question. What was the last movie you saw in the theater? Oh God. And I, I wish it was something better than that. I, I thought maybe there was something else, but nope, that was it. And then I've seen movies on TV, by the way, shout out <laughs> more like a public service announcement. Anybody, any of you out there with Disney plus who are, who are cruising around going, Hey, that Artemis Fowl movie looks kind of good. Stay away. It was possibly, unless, unless you want to hate watch a movie, which is also fun, but stay away. I, that's where it really hit me. Cause I was sitting there watching that on Saturday and I thought, my God, thank goodness. I'm not in a theater watching this because it's one of the worst movies ever made. But then I thought, <laughs> wait, when was the last time I was in a theater? Oh my God. And that just, that, that, that's where all this came, you know, came kind of pouring out. And I just realized like summer movies I've mentioned on previous podcasts are kind of a rite of passage for me. Like they're, mm -hmm. they are as, as sort of seasonal. Um, and you know, a lot of the summer movies are big and dumb and, you know, expensive and that's totally fine. But there's some, that communal experience, that, that opening night experience. I, Man, I still miss it. And this year in particular, like of all the times to not have it, I wish there was some version of it. And theaters are even opening as we speak. And who knows how, how that will go. But man, I just if 
anybody out there missing missing summer movies or missing going to the movie theater, please please let us know because that's it's it's good to to share this. Uh, have this you thing. now? You're different from me because um, you have uh, a, a woman who, uh, whether she likes it or not, has committed to spend the rest of her life with you. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> she you have you have a a cohabitator. Um, but have you, um, and Rachel done any like movie watching with friends or that kind of like, you know, Hey, let's do a video call and both, we all watch a movie at the same time. Nah, not yet. Only because I think to agree upon a movie to watch outside mm. of just the two of us would prove challenging. And then we're, we're one of those couples who like, it's never planned. It's never like, okay, tonight at seven, we're going to have movie night. It's like, I'll just walk in and she's watch. She's about to watch something cool. I'm like, what is this? Hold on, let me grab something. I'll come back oh, and nice. then we'll just watch. You know, like one of the one of the and this is kind of giving giving a, a movie on Disney Plus a, a good review. We uh we I think this was back in January, February, whenever Disney Plus launched. I think that was February. Um, there was a movie called Stargirl, not the not the comic book Stargirl that's on CW, but like a almost like a John Hughes-esque kind of Disney movie called Stargirl that was just delightful as hell. Mm. Um I'm not even going to say anything more about it. Just discover it and learn about it. But she had just started kind of watching. And I was like, what is this? And I, you know, it's one of those things where I'd walked in, I kind of stood there for a few minutes and I was like, I ended up just watching the whole thing with her. So to do that with friends is a little bit, we're just not organized enough to do it. I think. Well, I mean, I, I try to make a joke about, uh, a life partner, but that <laughs> it would be such a relief to me to have someone to just do movie night with in the same yeah. house. But, um, yeah, well, I've if, watched... you're ever wanting to, if you're ever wanting to join in and you've got a pitch for us, let us know. We, I'm happy to do it with you. Cause I think of all the people that would, it would work well with, I think watch <laughs> having you recommend something. It's like, okay, here, we're all going to watch it. And then, you know, maybe every, every hour we stop. It's like, what, you know, where are you? Did you yeah. go to the bathroom yet? Okay. We just do like a little intermission chit chat. No. I don't think we have a rabid enough fan base to do a, like a discord watch, but that would also be fun to try to that do, would be fun. you know, we're okay, going to start the movie at 8, 8 PM and just like, everybody's going to chat about it. Um, I'll cause I'll tell you what's on my list for that, for, for like a good sit, sit at home movie watch is birds of prey. Cause I have not seen it. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. That's, that's out early too on uh, streaming as they kind of cut the theatrical short and then re re uh, re promoted it. Um, yeah. On the Amazons of the world. Well, since our last podcast, some other things have happened in the news world. Um, in addition to movie theaters starting their their opening again, we lost a legend in the comics industry. Denny O'Neill, at the ripe yeah. old age of 81, passed away. Um, oh, man. Many yeah. of you will know Denny O'Neill from obviously Batman and his D <clears throat> his DC tenure. But I was doing some back research. I had forgotten he was so pivotal in the early days of Marvel and especially in reviving Professor X as a character in the X-Men pantheon and just sort of being a, a key man, if you will, in, in that stage of Marvel's success. Um, so definitely go back, read some Denny O'Neill books, um, you know, dive into that guy's catalog. Because, you know, we talk we talk about current creators a lot. Um, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, it, you know, obviously Hickman and, and Morrison and all those guys, but like Denny O'Neill, you don't get to the, you don't get to Hickman. You don't get to Kirkman without Denny O'Neill. He, and you don't get to the Batman we know today without Denny O'Neill, obviously. So, um, you know, go back. I didn't know if you had any thoughts on that other than, no, I, I'm glad you brought it up because you told me you had some current news and, um, to be honest, that was not the news I was expecting. Uh, uh -huh. but I mean, I, I, I had heard that news last week. Yeah. That's a great thing to to bring up, I, I, we are recording this on the day that Joel Schumacher 
passed away. Yes, a, oh another who also has his, you know, his thumbprint on the Batman legacy. Um, and we also got other news today, which is that Michael Keaton is in talks to be Batman in Wait, Flash movies. From this is the, news to me. From the DC, I was holding this back because I didn't know if you'd seen it because I saw it right no. before we hit record. They're uh, apparently in talks to have him come in and play Batman when they take the um, CW series Flash like into a movie. Oh, my God. That's <laughs> genius. I thought you were going to say there's news that Michael Keaton actually whispered, I'm Batman, to um, uh, what the hell is the kid who plays Spider-Man? Uh, Tom Holland on set, because I was reading that on Reddit earlier. I was like, well, that's kind of fun. You know, Tom, you Michael Keaton teasing Tom Holland. But holy crap, that everybody, you know, of all the things that people have wanted that I have been 100% on board for, it's finding some way to do like the Batman Beyond Bruce Wayne with Michael Keaton, you know, where yeah. he's that sort of like wizened old, and, you know, he's mm. he's out of the suit, but he's staying behind. He's basically like the mentor to like the new, yeah. whoever the new Batman is. Well, um, and know, and oh I, I, I just literally, we got this news like moments for you and I did our call. And uh, I, so I was just quickly searching for headlines and stuff. And at least some of the speculation is like, hey, is this a hint at how DC movies may go? Be which would make total sense because the CW – is it CW or WB? I don't have any idea. CW. Those shows are s such a different tone than the DC movies and honestly probably more popular. So yeah. why not capitalize on that and make that your cinematic universe You know, rather and you can, than you – can Forcing the Zack Snyder. Yeah. Well, you can rewrite some wrongs too, right? Oh, yeah. Like be, the, the whole Flashpoint and resetting and merging of universes, like that's much more a DC thing than a Marvel thing. Marvel's done it, but DC's known for like yeah. the different universes and collapsing them together and bringing them back again and having different people from different universes show up. Like that's a DC thing. They have yet to, I mean, the TV side has embraced it by even like the most recent, uh, crisis uh event they were yeah. actually able to bring in like black lightning and some of these sort of adjacent characters and then they even brought in freaking uh what's his face from smallville to, um oh i forget the actor's name um he and the the lowest actors they brought them in you know from a yeah. previous you know previous network even so like and greg berlanti knows what he's doing he's kind of the by all intents and purposes he should be the kevin feige of the dc dcu um and so it, this almost might be a back doorway to sort of have their cake and eat it too, to kind of keep giving him more power, more, you know, kind of more oversight over everything while also doing all this cool stuff and not making it. And then eventually it will all connect. The TV universe will be just as legitimate as the movies. You know, maybe, maybe Ben Affleck doesn't come back. Maybe they find some other way to like, you know, have Batman, maybe the Robert Pattinson Batman just gets absorbed in the, ju the justice league yeah, somehow. I just, <laughs> one small correction because I'm like Googling and searching headlines as we keep fantasizing about this is that what I forgot or like what I did not have in my head exactly is the difference between the two flash actors. Apparently they're making a flash movie with Ezra Miller who is actually from the movie. And that's yeah. what Keaton's in talks to be in. But you know what? So you know it what? was just that other speculative headline of like, you know, some blogger or somebody saying, Hey, what if this changes, you know, pivots the DC movies? But, yeah. but what? But 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 in the most recent crisis, that one of the biggest best Easter eggs was having the Ezra Miller Flash meet the TV Flash. Like he shows up in the, the episode, and so they've already established that there is connective tissue. If they're if they want their if they want it, it's there. It's not going to be weird. 
most of the fans will love it. So there is a chance that there's a way they can make that all work. And maybe that Ezra Miller, you know, that Ezra Miller flash movie has been on the shelf for so long yeah. with so many different directors attached and unattached and poor Ezra's just sitting there waiting his turn. It may end up being all for the best by a, you know, making it by the time they get to it, DC will have like gone through all this like trial and error nonsense. They'll have figured out what works best. You know, the wonder Woman's and Aquaman's of the world have sort of like laid the, laid the tracks for what the DCU should be as, as has the TV side. And they can really make that flash movie fix a lot of stuff if they want it to. And so if Michael Keaton shows up, Holy crap, then anything's possible. Anything could happen. That could yeah. be, oh my God, that could be, and Ezra Miller is just delightful. You know, I keep, can, you know, I, I just keep thinking of the, um, this quote that I've said many, many times. I, I also have said, I don't know who to whom to attribute it. And I don't know how true it is today, but some writer or creator had once said, you know, the DC universe is like, it's so great to be a creator in that universe because you get to create like with their property. It's so it's yeah. a creator's paradise Yeah. because you're working with the iconic characters and you can pitch stories that don't have to be canon. Yeah. Whereas the Marvel is like a fan's paradise because they're constantly trying to work to make everything canonical. Um, so if you wanted, you could, you know, sit down and read every X X-Man book and it would all connect, mm-hmm. um, in some weird way that you justify to yourself, I guess. But I, yeah, I keep thinking that like, you know, that is the strength of DC. Like why not have three different Batmans, you know, Affleck, Keaton and, uh, Pattinson and, I don't know, you know. I, I, it's interesting you say that. That just no may more ex- jokers. <laughs> that may, yeah, Jesus. That may explain why I've always felt more pulled towards the DC universe, even as a reader. I just, th- you know, something about the the diversity of creativity and like the way you can, you know, change something and flip something, add something to it. It is it is much more a melting pot. Whereas I like I like the framing device. Whereas the Marvel side is much more we're going to keep this in lockstep so that the fans get as much as they want out of it. But I'm a fan of, you know, changing it up. Like, I mean, one of the reasons I love Dr. Who is because every four to five years they yeah. reset the whole damn thing. And Dr. Who's almost like the best of both worlds and that everything is Canon, but then it's like never, it's never safe. Like anything could happen, even if crap you hate. And then like, if you hate it, just wait another three years and they'll change that too. You never know. <laughs> um, it's kind of where I am right now after this recent finale. I, uh, oh we can talk more about DC and Marvel in a future episode. Cause I'm sure we'll be back next week. Um, kind of back to regular issues, but this episode it is the book club, as we mentioned before. Yeah, and if you didn't know, if you have a hard you have, pivot, <laughs> a hard, hard, very hard pivot. If you, if you weren't paying attention, we are reading, uh, book one and two of the series March by John Lewis and or rather written by John Lewis and Andrew Aiden and illustrated by Nate Powell. Now, before we jump in, I, I like to start these book club episodes with a little bit of a framing device or an icebreaker, if you will. Um, and in this particular case, I think a nice question to ask, Now, I, I gave you a little heads up on this, so I hope you have a, 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 an answer of sorts. What historical event would you like to see turned into a graphic novel series that hasn't already been adapted? Uh, you did give me a heads up on that. And the, the one that leapt to mind, which, um, I, but of course it's got an asterisk because that, that's how I work. I'm sorry. Of course. Um, I only just heard this has been turned into a graphic novel, which are the events at Tiananmen square. Oh, um, good answer. I know, um, at our, uh, like in this 
in this moment in history and because we are specifically, um, you know, we're inspired to to read this book and talk about it because of civil rights issues that we're still dealing with today. Uh, that that's all that was on my mind. So that was where my mind went first. And then my second answer was, um, uh, I had recently shared with you, like, it's like, um, when the watchman was coming out, HBO, I, I don't even know how we describe this. They sort of commissioned a comic book representation of the events of the Tulsa, um, massacre. Mm-hmm. And so I had shared this link with you where it's like you and you said, Oh, did they make a whole book of this? And I was like, no, it looks like it's just kind of like a, um, sponsored content sort of thing. Like HBO, you know, hired someone to make this, uh, hard to say promotional for the Watchmen, but that I think would, that would work well in a, in a telling like, like March or Tiananmen square, like to just lay bare those things. Um, and, and then of course I, I just think there's, I don't know. There's there's countless historical <laughs> events. What would you like to see? I have two answers. Uh, the easy one, which kind of a cheat because it has been sort of done, but not in the way I would like it yet, mm. is just the Nikola Tesla Thomas Edison Wars. Oh. Um, we've seen that in movies and we've seen it touched on in various comics, but not like a true actual like historical ac- historically accurate account, you know, more kind of hinged on Tesla's life. Um, you know, that the mythology of him I think has, has gotten a little too unwieldy, as had the mythology of Edison. And it would just be nice to have a more grounded, yet still compelling telling of that. But then I was like, that's that's the easy answer. One of the things that we'll get into with March is that there is so much history I wasn't aware of or didn't know ran deeper than it did. And so it made me think, what other event in, in recent history is something that I just, I'm woefully ignorant of? And the one that jumps out at me easily is the Wounded Knee Massacre. Um, oh, wow. I'm from South Dakota. We actually, in my hometown, we have a Wounded Knee Museum <laughs> that was uh, installed uh, kind of after I moved, but it's still there. It's open when I'm home. I haven't gone. I, I have no excuse not to know more about that event. And I think a graphic novel retelling of it would be absolutely appropriate. And you know, the proceeds could go to help indigenous causes. There could be so much yeah. use use in something like that. Um, that would be, I, I think that, yeah, as much as I'd love to see a, a Tesla Edison thing, I think the wounded knee book would be much more meaningful and, and useful. Well, so that's I'll, mine. and I'll pitch the, uh, the, the book I'd only just read about is called Tiananmen 1989, our shattered hopes. It is by Lun Zhang and it is on IDW publishing. So it is out wow. right now. Excellent. But, um, very new. I, um, uh, the same friend who, uh, recommend we, um, up our, our coverage of, uh, creators of color, um, sent me a link to that. So that's how I heard about it. But I, I as we're going to explore in this episode, and as we talked a little bit in our last episode, we're, I mean, not that we had to be converted to this view, but we are finding more and more examples of how perfect the comics medium is to tell stories from history. Um, and I, I, you know, I'm sure we'll get into that as we, as this episode progresses, you know, we're, we're finding this like a perfect medium for yeah. communicating those ideas. It, it you know, th- more than anything else, I, you know, I, I just, that was, that was my takeaway from both of these books was that it, what a great way. I mean, comics, I mean, I, I, I always, I always get on the soapbox at least once every other episode, but like, 
It really is. The graphic novel medium, the comics medium, is kind of the perfect medium for history lessons because you can go at your own pace. You can, you know, the, the creators can make it as visceral or as you know interpretive as they want. Yeah, I'm thinking the sort of the. You, we, we mentioned or we name checked rather. Um, they call us enemies by George uh, Takai on yeah. uh, last episode, and the you know that's a great example of a sort of a softer look because it's kind of from the point of view of George as a as a child. So everything kind of has a a happier sort of softer sheen to it, even though the events themselves are terrible. Um, whereas March, as we'll find, really it's visceral, it's kinetic, it pulls you in in such a way that I don't think a documentary could, and I've seen yeah. quite a few on the sixties, you know, a movie couldn't, um, yeah. there's just, there's something about this and maybe it's just this particular team, um, that does it well, but, uh, it, it, it was so enlightening and so just, and it's, I'm so happy that I happy is probably not the best word. I'm so grateful that I read it yeah. now during like the current moment we're in because it's so relevant, but just, it's, it was a great way to get caught up um, on the civil rights movement, on on you know what African Americans have experienced in this country, who who's who's brought them from here to now, and just how much progress has been made. Like yeah, the current moment, there's a lot of a, a lot still to do, a lot of work to do, but good God, the you we, you know neither of us were alive in the '60s when this was happening, and it was just such a slap in the face to see how how much it changed from like 1961 to when I was born in 81. That's 20 years. You know, mm. I'm celebrating this summer my 20th high school reunion. And in the 20 years since I graduated high school, a lot has changed in terms of technology and entertainment, but more or less the world is kind of what it was then. You know, it wouldn't be that different um, if I had you know, time travel back in time. A lot of the sensibility was still the same. You go back from 1981 to 1961, holy crap. Especially if you're in the Southeast. Oh my God. It was just such a, it was such an eye opening and, and just very informative experience. I, did you have the same, when you were, did, did it hit you that same way? Did it, did it really feel like you were living history as you were reading this? Well, yeah. And, um, I, I as, as again, ho hopefully we'll get into, I don't want to like throw everything out all at once, but I, you know, I, you and I have talked about some things off offline and, First of all, I, I grew up in Nashville, knew that a lot of um, significant events uh, related to civil rights had happened in Nashville, but didn't have that historical understanding of uh, they didn't also happen in Memphis or mm -hmm. Atlanta. Or, you know, it's like to me, it was like, yeah, yeah, the, I know there are historical locations in Nashville. I didn't understand that was the center of like the, the student nonviolent committee, you know, um, I didn't, I didn't understand what a center it was to civil rights, which speaks both to my ignorance and privilege. Um, and also the systems around me that didn't educate me to that, you know, that's okay. That's the most and, relevant point of all. I, there were several times I cursed my education by just like, I'm like, I should know this. I should already know this. And just the fact that it was either treated you know sparingly or not at all through my K 12 and beyond education is just, it, that was, that was depressing to kind of consider. And it, you know, the fact that it took a graphic novel to bring me up to speed when, it, where education had kind of failed. I mean, this, it's one more argument why these books should be it, part of a history class. They should be required read. I mean, Giving kids, you know, middle school kids or high school kids, these three books, and we're only going to talk about book, books one and two, but it is a three book series. Yeah. Giving kids these three books would have done so much. I mean, like 
it, it would have been so much more informative to have hand being handed this. I would have, it would have, it just, it blows me away that I was not given this already. And you lived I, in Nashville. I, and I love that you said that too, because first of all, I now have a list of people to give this to. Yeah, same. same. <laughs> like I am going to buy the three volume set, you know, with like the physical one and, um, you know, give a copy to my brother, like give this to your kids, you know, when they're old enough to appreciate it. Um, and because it is, it's an education unlike anything you're going to get, like even if your school did cover civil rights, um, and this goes back, I think, to the, the point you're making on the comics medium and portraying historical events, is that a lot of a lot of times when we learn history in school, we're hearing about the events. Oh, there was a, you know, a, a sit-in at this luncheonette downtown. Um, there was a march down here on Broadway. You know, it's like you're hearing locations and dates. Yeah. You're not, um, you're not getting that story and that that that, but that uh, experience of being able to flip through the pages at your own speed and absorb it at your own speed. And to me, the reading this as well as other, you know, nonfiction, um, comics that we've read is like, it, it just lets me focus in a way where the, it's not, it's no longer like, um, the, how do I want to say this? The medium of March, the mm -hmm. artwork is familiar to me as a comic book. So I don't feel like I'm looking at historical footage, like I might in a documentary and yeah. I don't, get the experience that I'm just looking at like dates and places like I would in a history book. It's, it's alive to me in that way of like, this is a, a, a permanently alive telling of this, um, you know, it, of the series of events. And it, and I think, you know, again, something we'll, we have to touch on is that the autobiographical nature of this being told mm -hmm. from John Lewis's perspective is yeah. immensely powerful. Um, and, you know, that's, I mean, God, just again, my ignorance and privilege uh, coming to light, which is, you know, I was aware of him mm -hmm. and only during the last, you know, four years have I learned like what a, an historical significantly, you know, person that is, that is in, uh, gosh, wait, he's a congressman, right? Yep. Or, still congressman. Okay. Yeah. I well, was about to say senator, but I was like, no, I think he's a congressman. Yeah. And he's, I mean, he's one of those people who, I mean, th there was like six guys, six African-American guys and, and many others, but sort of six that were sort of the figureheads of the movement. He being the youngest one and he's the yeah. only one who's still alive. He, I mean, it, 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 again, as I was reading through this, the thing that just struck me, I'm like, here's, he's almost like a, a folk hero who's still alive. He's, he's there. Like we should be, we should be way happier the fact that there's still a living connection who was absolutely, he wasn't like some kind of like, you know, person, you know, a, a adjacent to the movement. He was there. He was one of the original people mm -hmm. doing the sit-ins, leading the movement, like representing the youth, the African-American youth of the time. And he's, you know, this is his story as much as, as it is, you know, the, the civil rights story. It's all kind of intertwined. Um, the thing that I, I want to really point out before we continue on too far is the team behind this is John Lewis himself, um, the author. And he partnered. It, it was very interesting to see who he partnered with on this. Um, his co-writer and by by co-writer, I think it's more of like an editor, you know, um, just taking John Lewis's story and and translating it, adapting it to the comics medium. A gentleman named Andrew, uh, either Aiden or Aiden. I forget how he pronounces it. Um, interesting to note. White guy, age 36. 
And then illustrating this is Nate Powell, who you may remember from a previous episode. He actually is the illustrator uh, behind the book You Don't Say, which is the first time I discovered the Tulsa Massacre. Mm. That's Nate Powell. I'm like, it, it, as I was reading through this, I'm like, why does this look so familiar? <laughs> Wow. It didn't even, I mean, the name didn't even, because it, it wouldn't have occurred to me that another pasty white guy, age 41, would have been the illustrator behind this work. But then I'm like, of course, Nate Powell, he's he's already, he already has a sensitivity to these issues, to this movement. So it's just interesting that John Lewis, uh, you know, being much, much older, partnered with two younger white guys to really translate the story. And the results are spectacular. Like yeah, I, these two guys knew exactly how to take that story draw it, translate it and, and kind of harness it in the exact right way. And it's just, it's just, it's amazing that that, ha that happened in this, with this team. Yeah. And the, at least the, you know, the story I, I got, um, from Wikipedia on that was that Aiden was a, um, uh, was an aide to, uh, Congressman Lewis. Oh, that makes and sense. Okay. Also a comics fan. Like he was a, like a, uh, telecommun telecommunications and technology policy aide. Okay. And so he went after Lewis had sort of related to him a lot of these events in this first person. Um, he was the one who said, you should write this into a comic book because that that will like deliver this, you know, this story in such a powerful way. And I, I mean, it's undeniable that it is. It's um, well, and yeah. shout out to Top Shelf Productions for being the publisher behind this. Like that, that was a little surprising to see, too, because this this seems like. There's other publishers who are sort of better known for these sort of um, literary graphic novels, and not the top shelf is is, you know, not a, a quality publisher, but it was just right. great to see them embrace this as they have and put the money behind it and allow it to be three separate books, um, which yeah. I think was important. Let, let's talk about that real quick because we're just talking about books one and two on this episode. Um, there is a there is a third book, and we kind of made the deliberate choice to just do books one and two for, for this reason more than any other in that book. One is the kind of the origin story, the, the, the new hope, if you will, of the John Lewis of the John Lewis experience, you know, it's his, uh, it's, it, it's, um, his childhood, his kind of upbringing, the things he sees, the way he views racism as a child and kind of how that shapes him. And yeah. then book two is him in college as a student, being on the front lines of the civil rights movement and inventing a lot of it as they go. It's not like he, you know, it's not like Martin Luther King was, you know, had, had been running it for five years and he, he showed up. John Lewis is there in a lot of ways before King even was. Um, yeah. K King was doing his, was not part of that student nonviolent coordinating committee, yeah, but yeah. they were drawing on ideas from him. And I, 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 there's a, there's several different pages where that, where it's mentioned, but I, I love that they had this philosophical foundation for it where, you know, they, they were looking to, uh, um, other nonviolent movements and like they, yeah, they had this whole, the heart of this, you know, was already developed. Um, well, and then book three, um, picks up, uh, book two ends on a very, very tragic cliffhanger. And book three um, is is not that you definitely go by book three. We we actually kind of wanted to we wanted to focus more on book two because there's events and story in book two that I didn't know that I think a lot of people aren't aware of. A lot of what happens in book three we actually kind of are aware of. That doesn't make it any less important. Doesn't mean you shouldn't have it as part of the collection. But we wanted to. I think if yeah. we included that, we would have had less time to talk about books one and two. And I think because we're more familiar with the events of book three. 
Um, yeah, I, we want to let let you as the reader just take that in as as you as you will. Uh, you don't have to hear us talk about it necessarily. And I don't think there's I don't think there's any way to separate each one of these books. Like I, I, there's no way to say, hey, just go read three or just go read. Like you yeah, need no. to read the whole thing. And they are very immersive. Um, I read both volumes one and volume two. Uh, maybe I split up two, but I think it was almost a single sitting for both yeah. where uh, and it was intense, you know, um, but once I was into it, it was like, I don't, I don't want to stop in the middle of this. I do think I had to stop in the middle of book two and was, you know, frustrated, like, Oh no, I got to get back to it. Um, and I've since had to stop in the middle of book three, but it is, it's so absorbing in that way yeah. that, you know, I would, I would definitely say like, there's no way to split them up. Um, well, but I, I totally agree with your focus on book two, uh, especially in, in how you preface this whole episode in how you and I grew up and knew, you know, historical things or stories or whatever, and just didn't know all the facts. Like before you and I started talking, you said book two covers these events you may know of, but they need a more light shown. Yeah. On them. Yeah. You may have heard about some of these things, but you don't, you weren't there. Like these books put you there. I want to give more shout out to uh, Nate Powell before we give and get into the story a little bit deeper. Um, as I said, Nate Powell, exceptionally talented illustrator. Um, he uh, is behind that, the sort of anthology series I mentioned on a, a last episode, You Don't Say. Highly recommend that. Um, this is honestly the perfect art for this story. I couldn't, th I was thinking, I'm like, who else? You know, if, if this was illustrated by somebody else, would it have been better or worse? I, I can't think of a single other illustrator who could have brought to this story what Nate Powell does. It's all in black and white, beautiful black and white illustrations. And the way, you know, it's, it's not, um, Nate Powell has this great uh, way of drawing where it's not panels and squares. A lot of it's layered uh, illustrations. Mm, yeah. they, they connect together. Sometimes he uses a grid system uh, when it's absolutely necessary, but most of the time it's it's layers and it's a lot of negative space. And um, just, he uses the medium so perfectly. So in the case of this story, it's, it's you know, there's a lot of daytime and nighttime. And so he's able to, you know, really bring you into a sense of time and place by just shifting the the page color from black to white, which obviously has as deeper context anyway. Yeah. Or subtext, I should say. But um, it's, it's, there, there's a kinetic nature to how he draws where you feel motion, you feel, you feel the characters yeah. reacting. Uh, you feel it's, it's less drawing characters accurately. I mean, they're, they're very well drawn. Like the people look like the actual people they're meant to represent. I think yeah. I read correctly. He drew over 300 different characters that were featured in some oh, way, wow. shape or form through the whole series. So just that alone is a, a feat of, of nature. But the other thing, I, Nate I Powell, mean, there's such great oh, scenes of like where, where all the leaders are pictured around a table or, um, you know, I'm looking at the thumbnails of book two right now and where on the title page, there's, there's a lineup of them where you get the like characterization of each person in there, you know, that he, like that Powell has done such a good job of like characterizing each one of them. Like you, they're distinct, you know, he knows what to focus on. That's, that's yeah. really what I'm trying to say. He knows what to focus on. And, and, and in such a way, there's an efficiency to his illustrations that mm -hmm. nothing is really wasted. Um, you know, you see, instead of having like a, a gang of white racists, like, you know, and, and you'll see them, you know, say slanderous things, but he can draw one guy. And I'm thinking of that, the, uh, the sheriff from Birmingham, I forget the guy's name. It's the, yeah. the, the sinister guy. Um, 
they, he can draw him in such a, a way that you're just like, you, you feel the hate coming off that man's skin and he's a drawing. Like you just know, you know exactly what that guy's point of view is. You know exactly what John Lewis's point of view is when he's represented or Martin Luther King. There are times when, when King is represented earlier on in the movement and he's a little unsure of himself. He's not the king, you know, the, mm-hmm. the fully realized King we sort of know King when he kind of came in was still kind of, you know, is, am I the right guy to do this? You know, should we be doing it this way? You know, everybody was kind of giving him more and more to do. And he was a little reserved at first. And you, you see that you feel that. So Powell, you know, Powell can really articulate this incredibly well. And it's, it makes sense too. It's, it's, I hate, it's so hard to talk about this without sounding like an idiot, but like, it is, it is a good companion piece to his Tulsa story, which was a yeah. short story that appeared in, in You Don't Say, but it really, like, seeing, having read and seen that, I could I could appreciate this even more, because I he really gets, you know, he well, knows how to draw fear, he knows how to yeah. draw concern and just hate, and he knows how to draw emotion very, very clearly, very efficiently. I- I, you know, it's one of those things where it's, uh, I mean, it's like any great work of art where I want, I kind of want to know the, the behind the scenes story of like, especially when you think of if the authors were not professional comic book creators, how much did Nate Powell get to shape how this was visually realized? Mm-hmm. And you talk about the, uh, the kinetic feeling of it. One of the ways that, one of the things that, um, you pick up on in the book is, there's a there's a clear break between like what's John Lewis narrating, you know, it's first person. He's telling you the story, you know, in yeah. in May of 1963, I did this. We went down to this. Um, a lot of times when there is violence in one of those uh, events, which there is a lot in book two, which is all um, uh, white people inflicting violence upon black people um, at the moment that the violence gets inflicted. There is no dialogue. There, there is yeah. no narration. There, there are no words. You just see it happen. You yeah. know, it's like he says, like just as we were getting off the bus, and then the next panel is, you know, a boot kicking somebody in the face, and the the shock and horror of that, especially in guided view. I don't know if you read it physically, but I read it on Comicsology. So, oh, interesting. Okay, having that panel pop up and going, oh my god, you know, it's just, it's like there's there's no words right there. It, it you just. It, you know, you you get connected to that that violence. And then, as you mentioned, there there are people saying hateful things. There's a visual representation of the sort of mumble and background noise, which is and and it's not always hateful. If there's a, a you know, there'll be scenes of like the the church singing and he will do like a squiggly speech bubble with cursive, you know, with like the words of a hymn in it to show yeah. like this is this is sort of um, diegetic audio, you know, like this is the sound of the church in here. And then there is the, you know, um, printed, uh, comic book narration of John Lewis while in the background, there's the the church choir singing. That also happens a lot during the violent attacks where the, um, racist epithets that are being, you know, shouted are similarly like, you know, they're in cursive and they'll sort of fade away. So you just get this feeling of like, there's just this background noise of all these people shouting hateful things while this violent act is happening right up front. You know, if it had not been in cursive, if it had been in that print format or, or God forbid, like in the Batman, you know, blammo pal kind of thing, I don't think it would have had the impact because in this, it's just like you're, what you're seeing is not the onomatopoeia of the violence. You're seeing the violence and you're in the background hearing the, the hate, you know, this is a great point because I think more than anybody else, Nate Powell and, and shout out to him. Cause he, 
I mean, he did the illustrations, but he did all the lettering, um, which yeah. a lot of times we don't really shout out the letterers because, you know, frankly, a lot of comics have just sort of standard word bubbles and stuff, and that's fine and it requires work, but it's not as much a part of the artistic experience. This is the opposite. This, yeah. I mean, like the, the lettering and his use of when and how to use it um, and how it sort of flows from panel to panel and, and crosses over with other stuff. It, it, and then the absence of it, to your point, like when he doesn't have anything, like I'm looking right now in book two, there's a, there's a page or actually it's a full, it's a full spread two page scene of a bus on fire and there's no words, there's yeah. nothing there. And you can hear the flames on the bus and you can hear the rioters in the background. Like he has this way of, of, of making you hear the scene and hear the, hear the environment that you're in very clearly. Like it was, it required no effort for me at all to like read through this. Yeah. And it's one of the uh, one of the many things that pulled me into that world. I could hear and feel like I could hear birds chirping, <laughs> like I oh, could yeah. hear, you know, smoke and just it's and it was it's impressive that that could be so visceral. I love that you brought that up because another thing he does with that lettering is he'll put if there is a sound effect, often he'll put the sound effect in the like motion lines yeah, of the yeah. action. Yeah. Um, and you you <laughs> said that about the panel you were looking at. I was just looking at the one of uh, the. I guess it's the sheriff, the, the name you can remember, Bull Connor, Bull Connor. Um, there we go. where they turn the fire hose on the children oh, who are yeah. protesting this. Yeah. And I and also while I was looking at this, while you were speaking, I I had that crazy effect where I tapped out on comiXology, you know, to get the full page. Uh, and only then did I realize, like, everything that was on that single page where, you know, there's a guy shouting through the bullhorn disperse or you're going to get wet. And then all of a sudden there's just this violent violent act of um, these Alabama cops turning a fire hose on black children. Yeah, and yeah. you're just, it's like almost all sound effect and action lines, you know, and the figures are reduced to like these little sketchy lines. They're lost in the water, just getting knocked over. And then down to the bottom is bull Connor's face saying, bring the dogs. Yeah. And it, it's, it's it, fucking but, terrifying. <laughs> it's interesting that it's interesting. Cause I, I have uh, both of these physically Great. Um, and, I'm yeah, I'm no stranger to comicsology. I love that format. But what's interesting about this book, I just I just had this realization. I even though you turn pages and you you know your your peripheral view has you can see everything that's kind of presented. This is probably one of the the first books, if not you know one of the only books I've read where I am so focused on a panel by panel basis. It almost feels like guided view, where I'm just like I'm so connected to the scene as it unfolds. I'm not really looking ahead, nothing's getting spoiled. So when I got to that same page where the water, you know, the fire hoses are unleashed, I, it hit me in its, its purest moment. As soon as my eyes like saw it in, 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 um, in order, you know, even though I'm like, I turn the page, I can, I can glimpse it, but it didn't really hit me until I saw it. So Nate Powell just has this amazing way to just pull you in. And I, I will say this, he also has this amazing, uh, talent of, intercutting between two different simultaneous events, whether it be, um, you know, one of the framing devices for the story is the election and inauguration of Obama. Um, it starts off with John Lewis, you know, in real time, uh, at the inauguration, he's, he's, uh, in the, at the Capitol building kind of meeting and greeting people in his office. He's still a Congressman at that time as he is now. Um, and that's sort of the, it, it starts there and it kind of, that's sort of the, 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 the bookends to each book. It's sort of when you, when we need mm -hmm. to pull back and kind of reorient the reader, we go back to that, that quote unquote present day moment of the inauguration of Obama. Um, and so 
he'll do that. And sometimes he'll have like dialogue in that juxtaposed with events in the past, events during the civil rights movement, or even like two events where like maybe they're John Lewis is watching TV while we, we cut to something else and you never lose your place. You never lose, you never get confused. You never get, um, you you never lose track of what's going on. It's dude, he, Nate Powell, I don't think I can ever say enough about this guy. He is a true just genius in terms of the comics medium, understanding how to do it and then putting in the work. My God, like there's not a single panel in here that it felt like, oh, he just rushed through that so he could finish the project. Every single thing. It's like he didn't waste a single page, a single, you know, a single panel uh, or single dot of ink. And it's not like um, it's not like technically flashy in that way that. Yes, we like love Alex the Ross art. Or something. Uh, you know, or and that's a great example. I was also thinking of, um, uh, oh my God, East of West. Um, oh, uh, Nick Dragata. Dragata, yeah, and how, and 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 other um, Hickman works where it's so graphically designed and perfect. Whereas yeah. you you really get the feeling of like pen and ink and and paint. You know, there's like a lot of washes in this that look like almost watercolor or something, and you you get that feeling of it but it is it is technically amazing in its organization like in its storytelling you know um but it's not flashy in that like this is a you know this this is a, you know he's not i don't i never felt like oh this guy is just sitting in photoshop doing this yeah oh no absolutely not and it's uh, yeah, yeah. As, as you were talking about the way he works with time i just flipped forward a couple pages to that to the scene where they talk about um the assassination of medgar evers where Lewis walks into the room and a, a group of um, uh, SNCC or SNCC members, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, are watching the news. And it's like from the news, it's almost like pencil drawings on the on the television screen to them telling Lewis about it in the normal style to this flashback style of like them narrating the events of what happened. Right? And yeah. it's like it yeah. flips like I mean, it's very subtle, but it's flipping from like three different drawing styles to tell that one little flashback story. Yes. And it, it's just, you're, I, you know, in the moment, none of that ever really occurred to me. It's only in sort of the zoom out of, of the book where, you know, after I finished it, it's like, Oh my God, that was like, that was amazing. And I, I think that's another thing that's, that allows you to go in and, and reread the book and like really experience it a different way, you know? Oh, 100%. Now, in the beginning, I, I gave the quote, the George um, Santayana quote, those who don't learn history are doomed to repeat it. And I think when we talk about the story, the thing that I kept coming back to uh, in you know, with that quote in mind was how, how, how much the current moment is either learning or forgetting from that moment. Um, you yeah. know, think about activist culture in America right now. And kind of what it has, what it has come to represent, and more of the tactics that activist culture has has kind of taken on. I, and maybe you can please disagree if, if this if this is your point of view, or if if, if you do disagree, please pipe up. I, I feel like, especially reading through this, that the current culture of activism has lost three key attributes since the 1960s: patience, focus, and thorough research. Um, 
the thing that I was, I, you know, they, they drill it in like the, the, the people that were part of John Lewis's movement, like they sat down, they read through all the laws. They made sure they were absolutely up to speed on every aspect of what they were involved with. So that if they were, um, you know, uh, contacted by the media or if, you know, you know, a white person was trying to you know basically tell them the law, they knew exactly what their parameters were. And then just this idea of, of, focused patience. Like we're going to go and we're going to sit in and we're going to get arrested and we're going to wake up and do it again the next day and the next day and the next day. And we're just going to be as polite and as, as patient and as you know reasonable as we can be so that everything bad that happens is on them. It's not going to be on us. We're just going to keep doing it and keep doing it. And just it with maybe no end in sight. I don't see a lot of that in today's activist culture. There are some parts of it, but it feels like We've shifted into a sort of just like we need it now. We need it now. Like it, it, you, you get these groups of people who aren't as up to speed, who haven't sort of been through, you know, training or haven't been through the proper education to understand what they're protesting. They kind of get thrown together, and yeah, you can get some results out of this. But I contrast that to this this moment in time in the '60s, and I'm like, oh my God, they were disciplined. They were just like these these people were absolutely the ones for their moment. And I'm, I don't know if I, I think we may have lost some of that. I don't, I don't know if you agree. Um, mm. it just, I, I, it, it just felt like this felt like a different kind of activism that we have lost touch with today. Well, I would say, um, I would say I do disagree. Uh, but I, I, what I draw from what you're saying is that the, uh, it is, it is such a great look at the nonviolent response to a civil rights crisis in 1960, yeah. you know, and we tend, I think, especially in history to frame it as there was a nonviolent movement. Um, and then there was kind of a violent movement and, uh, or not a violent, but a militant movement, mm -hmm. you know, um, I, you know, my response to, to patients is, well, I mean, it's been 401 years. How fucking patient do, do black people have to be in waiting for civil rights, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but. But then they were, but at that time they were like, I mean, they're. Which I honestly, that's I what, what I, there was a, there were several moments where people, uh, um, it, it's, a um, oh, another name just slipped, slipped my mind, but isn't it, um, Carmichael who's in the group who wants them to, uh, you know, fight back if they're hit. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I, I found myself sympathizing with that view. Like I can't, I can't imagine. I, I can't imagine being in that situation where you, where you, you say I'm, I'm nonviolently going to ride a bus from this place to this place, and the response of the white people in the deep south is to, you know, um, plaster paper all over the windows so that you can't see out and keep you in the dark for hours only letting you out to attack you. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's a fucking horror movie. Yeah. And yeah. the, the determination not to respond with violence is like foreign to me. And I'm a very pacifist, nonviolent person. You know, it's just like, I can't imagine being caged up like that and not having a violent response to it. Um, more than likely I would have a panic response to it. Yeah. Um, yeah but yeah. same, <laughs> I, you know, that, that willpower is, amazing. Um, I part, part of that though, was because, I mean, I, I attribute a lot of that to when they, when you signed up for this movement, especially as a student, they're like, Hey, here's Emerson, here's Gandhi, here's Thoreau, yeah. 
read these people, read these books. You have to be on board with this philosophy or you can't be part of this movement. That I think, you know, that's the difference is that there was a very focused, rigid structure that this, that these early groups participated in. And they were very, they're militant in that if you were caught smoking, if you were caught, you know, retaliating anyway, they kicked you out. There's like, no, 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 no. Like there's another thing later on, uh, King himself, um, makes the point, look, it's not tied to communism or black supremacy. This is a integrated movement. We want everybody. And so there was, and you can see where the Malcolm X's of the world would start to split off. And he even makes a point like Malcolm X was not invited to that white house summit yeah. later on in book two, the sort of the, the big six, um, kind of guys behind the movement meet with JFK at the white house. And they made a specific point to say, you know, uh, you know, uh, missing from that meeting was Malcolm X, who yeah. we didn't really, you know, we appreciate what he was trying to do, but that's not, that wasn't what we were, the way we were going about this was not how he wanted to. And, you know, we were, I was familiar with sort of that rift um, they're, you know, they often, they often compare Malcolm X and, and King to, you know, professor X and Magneto in terms of their, <laughs> their the ways they go about um, kind of achieving, they, they, you know, they shared the same goal, but they had very different ways to get there. So it's just interesting that I feel like, the King era, you know, the King John Lewis era of of protesting and organizing has sort of lost way or lost ground to more of the Malcolm X style. And I don't know. I mean, maybe do you, do you think that's do you think it's because it's so much more, you know, anybody can just go and protest like you don't have to kind of go through this orientation um, period. Is, is that part of it? Or do you think it was just a different mindset of the time? I, that was the thing that I was, I kind of came away with most, not confused by, but just like kept, I just kept wondering, I'm like, how did we get from there to this? When that, you know, a lot of people died. A lot of people went to jail many times were beaten, but look at what they achieved. Is that something we should, you know, should, we should be so quick to dismiss now? I don't know. I, I don't, you know, at, at, uh, after 400 years, I don't know how you make the, the, the point anymore. Um, there, I had just watched this, uh, you know, amazing, um, I, I would call it a testimonial, uh, from Kimberly Jones, um, uh, a black author where she, she describes this, you know, the, the, why are they rioting in their, you know, in their own neighborhood kind of, um, accusation and, and, you know, the way she explains is like, look, it's, you know, we're here for hundreds of years when we when we were literally slaves and could not own anything. Yeah. Then we built up these places like in Tulsa and you just burned it down. Yeah. So imagine playing 400 games of Monopoly and saying you don't get to own anything. You can't buy any property and all the money you make goes to the same person. Then you play 50 games where you where you can build up some money and they just take it all away from you. Like yeah, yeah. it's the game has always been rigged and, uh, and riots don't burn down the place that they own because they never owned anything, you know, yeah. they weren't allowed to. And so I, but that's interesting that you read it, it with, because obviously there's no way to read it without thinking of this moment that we're in. Oh, and I, what I kept, uh, thinking of, during the recent wave of protests is um, actually how how peaceful it had been at, at after a spot. You know, it seemed like there were reports of um, there's a there's a real clear break to me that I saw. And I, I could be this is just totally subjective, I'm, I'm sure. But the news reports of violence, rioting, looting 
seemed to me to break after the day of George Floyd's memorial. Mm -hmm. And the other big event I saw taking place in those days was when we started getting news reports of police reaching out to the protesters and, you know, kneeling with them, telling them their story, uh, walking with them, doing, you know, anything like that. It's like, if you all this always, if, if the police always present this side of like, you are against us, yeah. then you're, you're just going to encourage that rioting, looting, looting kind of thing. I don't think any of the actual protesters are doing that looting and rioting. I think those are, you know, anarchic elements that like come from outside. Yeah. Um, well, but, maybe, but there was maybe also maybe another not. thing. I, the other go, thing go. we're missing is that this is focused on the nonviolent side of it. And yeah. I would be really interested to, you know, to read a, an historical like documentation of the militant um, response to white the Malcolm supremacy. X version of the story. And, and yeah. also just to, you know, uh, you know, just to make sure that we don't um, uh, stick to the kind of popular history, uh, Malcolm X did reject the um, uh, that response. I believe, mm -hmm. you know, I, I believe like he, he like later in his life he he's I I'm, please correct me if I'm wrong and uh, listeners as well like, but I think he 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 broke with the. I, I'm not really sure if it was with the Nation of Islam or with another leader, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I just watched an old uh, a clip of him on this uh, white people conservative show where he, you know, <laughs> very calmly explained to these, you know, white people like what he what he was saying. <laughs> and so, um, but yeah, you know, another fact that jumps to mind that I saw this week was like the <laughs> the only time the NRA supported, uh, you know, uh, an assault weapons ban was when uh, the Black Panthers showed up with assault weapons yeah, you know, on the that. steps of the, uh, you know, California um, state government building, whatever it was. It's funny you say that. I, we were actually before we went to uh, Rachel and I flew to California a week ago and the night before we were actually watching a Black Panthers documentary, I think on PBS or some of those. And I learned that exact that That's exact fact was where yeah. I learned that. I was like, oh, my God, I had no idea. You know, the thing the thing that really I, I think that if there's another theme that penetrates this entire book. It can be summed up, there's a quote later on by John Lewis himself where he says, I deeply believe that our discipline paved the road to our success. Yeah. And he says that about the movement, but I took that as much about him as a person. Like if you, if you track his story and it starts, you know, it, the book one gives you a lot of his childhood and sort of, you know, how he grew up, what he saw, his interactions with white people and, and vice versa. All the things that brought him to the first sit-ins that he participated in as a student in Nashville, that discipline, like that ability to get up and do it again and do it again. That guy went to jail so many times and was beaten to almost yeah. beaten to half to death so many times to then just get up and do it again and stay committed and stay disciplined about it and do it with – the other thing to, to really make sure we mention, to do it with the most dignity I have ever seen any group of people bring to any discussion. I mean, he dressed up in the suit and he went and they just did it like, you know, again, no smoking, no swearing. Like, we are going to hold our heads high and just come back again and again and again and again to where it's almost inevitable. Like, that discipline, it I couldn't do that. Like, no. it would have to really be life or death for me to even get close to that. And the fact that here, you know, here's this 20 year old kid doing this, you know, cause no one else would. And he just, his experiences in life brought him to that moment. 
it's why it's important to get to book one because it, you kind of need to know what brings, how a person is shaped that way to be that person at that time. Like that's important. Oh man. I'm so glad you said, I was about to interject exactly the same thing of like in book one, uh, you see John Lewis as what his parents and family thought was going to be this like, um, young minister. They were yeah, sure that yeah. like that, that was his calling was like, he, he, you know, he was, he preached a sermon and he was 16 and he, you know, so when he went to Nashville, it was to a Baptist college, I think. Sorry. Fisk. Sorry. I can't remember that. Fisk um, University. Well, but it? he, but it, didn't he go to like the, um, uh, oh, I thought yeah, he, he yeah, came yeah, here for right. something else. Right. You're right. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's, uh, um, and, as and, and maybe, maybe this is, I don't know how, if this is germane to the, the conversation or not, but I think a lot of that discipline and that approach that they took was very much informed by their religious views. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I took away, like, as I was reading it was just, um, almost the obstinance to continue those religious views when you're clashing with white supremacists who claim to share the same religious views, you know, mm-hmm. um, which is, uh, probably a discussion for a, a completely different podcast, mm-hmm. but you know, they, they were really taking what they saw as like the Christian approach to, to turn the other cheek and, you know, yeah. um, to be the nonviolent, um, counter. Uh, but I mean, we really can't say enough about how, violent the deep South was. Oh my God. And one of the other things that struck me is, which struck me in like a way that has never struck me reading other history is doing the subtraction between my date of birth and like the death of Martin Luther King or some of these other events and going, you know what, this, this happened about a decade before I was born. Yes. Some, some of these events. Yeah. And, and then thinking back now to a decade ago and going like, wow, a decade ago we had our first black president and now we're still having these, the protests and the civil unrest and like, you know, the arguably most racist president we've ever had, I guess, or I, I that can't be true. I mean, we, we must've had a hundred years of racist presidents or more, but, um, a, a modern racist, like we have not seen, you know, in my lifetime. And, um, I just yes. think like, Oh, I don't think of 10 years ago as being that long ago now that I'm in my forties. But think about this, you know, say what you will about Trump, but he's not getting on the, on the Capitol steps yelling segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever, which is what George Wallace did when he ran for governor and won. Like that was his, his acceptance speech. Like it was so, I mean, we hear, you know, in the modern context, like how racist the South used to be. I like your, I like your kind of jumping around, you know, you know, counting down the days between your birth and this. That was what I was kind of saying in the beginning, like 20 years passed between 61 and my, you know, my birthday. Yeah. And in that time, we went from a place where like, you couldn't even like be in the same room with a black person. You'd go to jail. Not, I mean, let's not even talk about like interracial marriage, like all that was still to come, but like Mm -hmm. just that people were openly like, proudly just like not on my watch and just like, you know, doing the most malicious things. 
And like by the time I was a kid, like all of that had, you know, if, if maybe it was suppressed, but it wasn't on full display like it was, you know, in the telling of this book. So there was there was this feeling that crept over me while I was reading this, like, my God, it was not that long ago. There are people yeah. that were I mean, Strom Thurmond, who was, you know, almost which is I mean, he was still a he was still a sitting senator or sitting representative yeah. senator. By the time you know I was in high school, he was still in there. Like that guy, just like John Lewis, he was there then. He was one of the bad guys. It would be like, it would be like, you know, uh, I hate to use this comparison, but like it would be like the uh, the rebels beat the empire, right? And let's say Grand Moff Tarkin was just still around afterwards and yeah. was just like still like hanging still out. Still in the Senate. Yeah. yeah, still in the Senate. It's like, you're, you're Grand Moff Tarkin. You were like, what the hell? So like it, there was a dissonance, I think is, the, is yeah. the right word, a dissonance in reading this and trying to really like this is not fiction. And so much of these events, so many of these events, like I'll pick out. I, I loved your reference to the one. Um, when they're riding the bus from Nashville to Birmingham and they made them stay on the bus and they started blacking out the windows. That was horrifying. And it was like, I had to tell myself that that was real. That happened. This is not a, cause you kind of get caught up in the, in sort of the, the drama of the events and you sort of almost convince yourself, Oh, this is just fiction. No, 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 no. This is real. (laughs) This happened. It's happened not long ago. And it, you know, there's, there's a, there is a, generational attitude, <laughs> not, not in our generation, but in our, uh, you know, parents or, or the generation in between us or something of, well, after the civil rights, um, struggle, everything was fixed as though in, in uh, 1969, it was all fine. Yeah. And what you and I are both getting at is like, it wasn't that long ago that this was so you know, seen as so wrong. And Strom Thurmond is like such a great example of like, how did they not, the fact that they didn't kick that guy out shows you that like, you know, it wasn't fixed. Like, uh, this, this did not get solved in one little, like, you know, like there was, there were eruption of of violence and then everything was hunky dory. Like they're still trying to disenfranchise black voters and people of color all over the country. And another thing, um, all of this, you know, put in my mind was like, it is this total rejection of the Republican and libertarian view that, you know, people will ultimately do the right thing, like at the, at the smallest level, like yeah, there, there's, yeah. it's very subtle, but there are some great points of like, the federal government needs to step in because people are literally not equal in Alabama and Mississippi, you yeah. know, and they're never going to correct their voting system. I mean, you know, the the literacy tests for black voters and just the the bullshit that they put them through just to register to vote. Like, of course, they can't change the system. You know, it's like Kimberly Jones said, it was all the game was always fixed. And seeing all that and going like, Jesus Christ, this was like, you know, 10, 11 years before I was born, which I knew, you know, I yeah, knew. But yeah. I'm just saying like that visceral connection to this book and like the way it put the story right you know, in let let me stew in the story um, as long as I needed to stew to like really take that in was what was so magnificent about this book. Can I pitch you something that just occurred to me while you were talking? That was a great, great little uh, point. And I like stewing in it, I think, is is the real reason why this is the perfect medium for this sort of history. But then something occurred to me. Tell me tell me if you if if this sounds reasonable. I think. One of the problems with our current moment and why, you know, there's a lot of people joining, you know, joining the protests, you know, throwing their support, like saying, yeah, you know, 
I'm actually heartened by how many people um, had had no hesitation to say, you know, I stand with I stand with yeah. just all of this. There's a lot of other people who aren't opposing it, but they're sort of middling and just kind of confused by all of this. And, you know, like, why are we protesting? I almost wonder if the events of the civil rights movement that, that are in these books, represented in these books, were so bad. And a lot of, there's people who are very much alive, who were alive then, who were maybe children or young adults when this was going on. And this was so horrific that, it, yeah, cops killing black men is a big problem. But it we're not seeing actual, like, you know, we're not seeing a thousand black children you know, sprayed with water and attacked by dogs just cause, right? We're not seeing that right now. So I'm almost wondering if the events of these of, of the civil rights movement were so bad that by comparison, people are looking at it and because it's not as bad now, they're like, well, it, it seems fine to me. And they're just not, they're not going that next level deeper. Do you think it's because the contrast was so great that there were so many just, you know, died in the wool races walking around proudly saying, you know, like not in Birmingham, like we're gonna bomb a church to make it not here. Do you think that's why there is kind of a disconnect that there are some people who are still like, yeah, I don't, I don't know what's going. Why is this a problem? Why? I thought black people were doing fine. Like, I, I wonder if it's because, you know, that we have come a long way. There's still a lot of work to do, but the, what John Lewis had to go through was so intense that it, it just, it kind of cast this numbness, I think, over maybe a good chunk of the population where they just can't. They think that was so, almost like going to war. Like I saw everything. Everything after that almost seems pale by comparison, even though it's not. Does that make sense? Am I am I crazy? And I don't think you're crazy. And I think that's what, like, it's like there's a series of those events. You know, it's like yeah, the Civil War yeah. ends, and the you know white white supremacists, which are just the white people who got to make all the laws, mm -hmm. go, okay, we fixed it. You know, like the civil war is over. We're done with that. But that's not exactly true. Like if you didn't deal with it correctly, uh, I just read a um, uh, sorry. To, it's so dumb to say I read a series of tweets, but I read a threaded you know, story from uh, this historian, Jared Yates Sexton, um, who talked about how the reconstruction was actually just totally bungled because it was basically left in the hands of a white supremacist, you know. Yeah, so yeah. like an another like, you know, uh, it it's in the hands of Johnson, I guess. Um, right. Um uh, you know, a Southerner who was Lincoln's vice president. Mm -hmm. um, and so he didn't really care about fixing it. You know, I mean, the the holiday that we just had to force people to celebrate Juneteenth um, is not actually the date on which the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. It is the date two years later when they finally told the slaves in Texas that they were free wow. because Texas kept that fucking information from all the people that remained enslaved after the civil war, like, Oh dude, I don't even know where I was going with that, but it's just, um, it's a series of horrible events that everyone wants to like, just sort of turn their mind off of after it's done, you know? Yeah, and I think that's yeah. what the generation that lived through all that terrible conflict wanted to turn, wanted to turn it off. But you know what? Yeah, uh, no president was elected to lead the country to heal them. They elected fucking Richard Nixon. Yeah. Who four years later, you know, like basically tries to steal the election himself in this series of dirtbag botched robberies, you know, in the Watergate. Yeah. Um, uh, b back when, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there were a few Republicans who like had spine enough to stand up and tell him, like, you're going to get impeached, get the fuck out. Yeah. And now we're going now we're still reliving that same horror. And it's cool that you um, 
you quoted a uh, uh, Satyana. Um, was that how you say it? San San Santayana. Oh, Santayana. Yes, thank you. Because um, I, when you when you told that to me before the show, I thought of Kurt Vonnegut's response, which is, "I got news for you. We're doomed to repeat the past, no matter what. That's what oh, it means to be alive." Yeah. And yeah. I, that I think is where we are now. You know, I yeah. just a couple of weeks ago read this thing about. Uh, you know, Trump is not the new Nixon. He is the new George Wallace. Like mm-hmm. he's saying the 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 secret stuff out loud. You know, he just had a rally where he referred to all the protesters as animals, you yeah. know, which used to be this this sort of r- racial code word. And I think still is to an extent. Um, so it's you're right. He's not getting up and saying, hey, segregation. But you think of like the first time his name ever appeared in print was be- because of that. Like in his in the Trump, uh, you know, like in the 1970s or whatever, he was sued for that racial discrimination. Um, oh, he and his yeah, father, yeah. you know, so it's like That's this dude's true. whole fucking career started in the media with what a racist he was. Yeah. Um, and here he is, you know, still trying to use those code words. And it's I mean, what other moment? I mean, what, you know, like read this book, you know, like <laughs> read, read all these books like it's. Oh, you know, you can you can hear the exasperation in my in my voice and stuff. And I and some of that exasperation is not good, righteous anger um, with the situation. Some of it is shame and embarrassment. And I only last week learned that, like, the high school I went to removed a last week, removed a statue to a Confederate soldier that evidently had been up there for 100 something years. And so I the whole time I went to school, just didn't even think about it like Oh yeah, of course we got a Confederate soldier statue here. Like one of the, that's fucking one, outrageous. You mentioned shame and like one of the things and, and kind of trying to end on a more positive note um, in this story because th- th- this is a heavy book, a heavy two books I should say. Book one, um, a little lighter by just because it's it's you know John Lewis's childhood, but um, book two is heavy. But one of the things I really I was so glad to see was, and I forget where it is. It's, I think it's towards the middle. It's one of the many times John Lewis gets arrested. Oh yeah, it is. It's almost exactly in the middle. And it's probably the most dehumanizing arrest. They send, um, Mm. John and a bunch of people to, um, oh, it's, is it Mrs. Is it, oh shoot, I'm on it right now. It's, uh, it's do, 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 Perchman farm. Yeah. Which is Mississippi state penitentiary. Uh, be all the jails had gotten so full uh, and they, these guys, uh, these particular, this group of people had, had, um, I think they, they refused to post bail because they didn't want to get hand money to a system that just kept oppressing them. Like, we're not going to do that. We're not going to yeah. post bail. We're just screw that. And so they got, they basically got sent up to Parchment Farm, which was almost exactly a recreation of, you know, like the slave barracks of, um, you know, of the, of the deep South. They stripped them naked. They made them go into the shower and these guys just kept singing. They kept yeah. singing spirituals and and hymns, and they made a, a specific point uh, to say like, "You're not. You can take anything, but you're not going to take our souls." And at some point, you know, the guards get so angry and and annoyed of them singing, like, "If you keep singing, we're going to take your mattresses." They're like, "Take our mattresses. That's fine. You're not going to take our souls." And there's a there's a particular guy, um, uh, oh Jim Bevel. 
I, I wrote in here, every, we all need a Jim Bevel in our life. When they're standing in the, in the line, buck, buck ass naked. And there's some white guys with them too. Cause there were some, some white, um, protesters who joined these movements and were just, were, were put in jail right with these, with these, uh, with the African-American guys, but they're all naked. They're a buck ass naked standing in line being handed their prison uniforms. And one of the guys notices that they're not giving them underwear and they're like, Oh God, you're not even any underwear. Jim Bevel you know, always colorful. Jim Lewis goes, always colorful. Jim Bevel helped keep it in perspective. Jim Bevel, while in line, looks at the guys and says, what's this hang up about clothes? Gandhi wrapped a rag around his balls and brought down the whole British empire. Like that sort of like just spitting in the face of oppression. Like you're not going to take our, our, we're going to still have fun. We're going to sing. We're going to like, you're not going to take our dignity and you're not going to take our souls. Screw, we're just going to, we're going to outlast you. That I think that's why they won the civil rights movement. That's why we had a black president in a Brock. Like it's that it you're well, not going to take our souls. You can take anything else. Yeah. And just seeing, I loved seeing the, just the increasing frustration and consternation of the white prison guards and all the racists they had to deal with thinking yeah. that, you know, if we just, if we just make them pay post bail, like, well, and these guys to the end, like, no, you're not going to do that. We, take, take our toothbrushes. That's fine. We're just going to keep, keep at it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe what you were saying earlier about that, like, like seeing current day protest movements and not, you know, not knowing exactly how to, how to frame it historically. Uh, I, what we see in this is just that, that's that spirit of like, you know, they, they, I, I mean, it's just a, the, the, they embodied their mission. Like so fully. Well, and what you and what you notice? Well, real quick, what you notice though is that what the the racists really wanted was to crush their spirit. Exactly. That's what they really wanted. And no matter what they tried, it just wasn't going to happen. Yeah, and and toward, there's a there's a great uh, panel of the the Alabama cop kneeling before the little black girl, and he's like, "What do you want?" And she yeah. says, "For freedom." Yeah. Yeah. You know, and there, there are several signs of, uh, of, uh, you know, Dr. King saying something similar. Um, I also want to point out one other thing that's like, that's subtle, uh, and jumps back to our art thing is there's a great way that they, that, um, uh, Powell almost always shows you the Confederate flag on the policeman's uniforms. I never noticed that. Oh my gosh. It's on like every shoulder of every cop. Oh my God. You realize that like, like it's a historical detail and it's, and I think you see the racist symbolism of it. Oh my God. uh, You're right. So noticed it so well. And that's that thing that I know I've brought up in rants before, but the, you know, historically the Confederate flag wasn't really seen between Reconstruction and the civil rights movement. It uh, came back to the South as a symbol of white supremacy during the civil rights movement. So it's really difficult to have conversations with like an older generation. Like my parents, you know, they remember it when they were kids, but that's because the racists brought it back then. Mm-hmm. Like if my parents were 10 years older, they might not have, they might have seen this abrupt, like, wait, why is this Confederate flag back? You know, like, well, at least these are the, this is the history I understand is that, you know, if you, you might not have seen it that much, or at least definitely not out of the deep South, you know, between the civil war and the civil rights movement. Um, but I mean, my God, what, what else can we say? Like, this is such a powerful book and it's, uh, unbelievable. And by book three, like we, we, you know, 
again, we wanted to focus a little bit more on some of the stuff in book two, just cause it was, it was so, um, there was so much, um, yeah. but definitely it, it, complete the trilogy, get all three of them. It, and, and it really, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. We've alluded to several of the big events that we wanted to shine light on in this. Uh, but we, I don't think we really, we didn't name what that cliffhanger is. And that, that is that book two ends on the Birmingham church bombing, which mm-hmm. killed four little girls. Yep. Um, and it is so horrific and it's like literally the last, I think the last frame of the book is just yeah. that smoke, you yeah. know, just like, yeah. um, uh, m- maybe you get a little bit of afterward, but, um, uh, uh, verifying now, no, you don't, you see no, the, no, the last panels, that phone off the hook, you know, which is an incredibly powerful place to end that. And I had to. I mean, I, I waited a day and then I went and bought book three immediately. Not that I wasn't gonna, but I'm like, yeah. I have to, I have, I, my life has to end stew. on a, a hopeful note. <laughs> like I can't, this can't be the last thing I read, you know, for the next week or two. So I had to go grab that, that book three, which is kind of what we want you, you listeners and, re- and fellow readers to do and just complete the, you know, complete the, the story arc. Yeah. And I will say I didn't read it back to back. Oh. You know, even, even though, um, I, I talked about how I, you know, would read book one in one sitting and then went to the next book and almost did it in one sitting. It was still like, I took days off in between, yeah. <laughs> it was, you know, yeah. it was like I read book one and then I just like, let it breathe for a week and then read book two and let it breathe for a couple days. Um, but I had that same reaction. Like when this ended, I was like, you know, instantly downloaded book three, even if I didn't start it right away, it was like, I, you know, I don't know what to do with that discomfort right there. That's a great um, point. Actually, I, I would encourage other, I, and it's a really nice slipcase edition to get all three. Yeah, that's true. I wish I had done what you did and give it more space. Um, I was just, I was so enthralled, but it did, it hurts your whole, it hurts your spirit to get through some of the stuff. Cause again, it actually happened to an, you know, to, to, it happened in this country and the guy that's telling the story is still alive. He's still out there. He's, I mean, he should be a goddamn folk hero. Just yeah, from this alone, like you hear about Johnny Appleseed and, you know, John Henry, like, and John Lewis, like he's, it, it just, I, I wish, I wish so badly I had known this story in this way 20 years ago. Like, especially when I was in yeah. Nashville, I would have gone to all these places oh, and yeah. just considered, because a lot of these places are still there. The you know, First Baptist Church in Nashville is there. Some of the, you know, the places where they did some of their sit-ins are still there. That's yeah. hugely important. Like it, it's worth going and sitting and experiencing and being like, this is where all this occurred. And not that long ago, um, just incredible. I can't say enough about how this medium just history comes alive. And I know that that's sort of a trite tired state, you know, phrase, but it's so true. Like it, I haven't, I haven't felt history this visceral and this kinetic. I don't think ever. Um, yeah. and I just, uh, now I'm almost, I'm glad we, I'm glad you, uh, recommended Tiananmen because I'm almost now on this kick where I just want to go consume all history this way. Honestly. Um, yeah. My, my eye went immediately to like the Guy Delisle books, yeah. um, especially the unread one on my shelf where it was like, I, you know, I don't know how to go back to, to fiction right now. Although I, I know that I, you know, when I turn on Netflix, it's like, I got to push fiction into my brain because there's too much reality. Yeah. Um, but I, maybe this is a good place to plug this. I wanted to plug a book, um, uh, you know, because you and I've been talking uh, over the past several weeks about, you know, trying to be more consciously reading, uh, 
books by creators of color. And I picked up this um, volume one of a book called Livewire, uh, which is by uh, an author named um, Vita Ayala. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and they identify as a non-binary Afro-Latinx um, writer. And it is it, like it was a very cool thing because I, I had seen a tweet about it when it came out and um, instantly, you know, reactionarily went to Comixology to check it out and fortunately did not pull the trigger because then I realized that there's a um, it was for sale on a, a, a website called drivethroughcomics.com. Oh. Um, and uh, actually, I think I bought it on drivethroughrpg.com. But anyway, on that, um, it's probably in both places, same company, obviously. Um, you, uh, all of the proceeds there were, were being donated um, by the creators. Um, and it is a crazy, like, I wouldn't call it a superhero book. It's like a techno powers, sci-fi, um, you know, futuristic, modern kind of story. Um, and I just, I, I wanted to plug it cause I was like, Hey, we don't plug enough stuff like this. Uh, and I know you can pick it up somewhere and do some good, you know, with your purchase. Um, so I got a PDF version of it and you know, it's easy to read. And, uh, I, I use an app called panels. Um, but I'm also reading it in, I, I, I use an app called panels to read indie books that I buy that way. But, uh, I'm, I'm just reading this in like a documents by Riedel app. So, you know, not feeling like I'm missing any of the comiXology experience. And, and, uh, fortunately my purchase got to, you know, go somewhere useful. Heck yeah, man. The cover art looks amazing. I've just, uh, added this to my bookmark list as well. So I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, this, this, I've, this would have totally, it's valiant too. That's interesting. This would have totally gone under my radar. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but for the, uh, focus that we, you know, or like consciously trying to, to have on ourselves now, you know, um, driven by a, a good friend telling me like, Hey, you guys should do this. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm keeping my eye open. I definitely want to like us to talk about it when we, when we see cool books by creators of color that don't necessarily have to be a heavy history read, you know, That's like true. this is a yeah. fun techno sci-fi read. Um, I'm and, glad you said that because that yeah. that is the temptation after reading something like March is like let's find more stories like yeah. I mean and, and in some ways I was sort of my when I said I want to see a graphic novel of the uh, wounded knee incident I was kind of playing into that which I do but it 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 can be a little seductive to think that's all this should be about it's like no 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 that, that that's important but so is just straight up fiction by you know creators of diverse you know, diverse creators like that's just as important. exactly yeah. Um, for sure. So, uh, that's my pitch. We're getting back to comic, like just, uh, non political historical comic books next week. And we're talking about two of our favorite new books, um, decorum by Jonathan Hickman yep. and mercy by America, uh, at, at, uh, darn, what is their last name? <laughs> you almost Adol had it. And Dolphini at Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and Andolfo. There we go. Yeah. Mirka and Dolfo. Um, yeah, uh, I, that's correct, right? <laughs> yep, no, no, that's right. That's right. That's right. We'll be so back. It's not necessarily a book club where you have to have read the two issues that exist of both these books, but if you do, you'll enjoy it all the more. And if you read, uh, March with us, or even if you haven't go pick up books one and two, uh, 
you know, let us know what you thought. If there was something we had a take that you either loved or hated, that's awesome. We want to know about it. Um, if you had a different take, we'd love to know about that too. So just, you know, share your comments in our Instagram feed, um, send us an email. You know, we would love to feature future commentary too. So if there's something that's interesting and you want to be in an episode, maybe, maybe we feature you, maybe, I don't know. I'm just sort of speaking on my ass right now, but like, that's, we'd love to hear from you. That's what I'm saying. We'd, we'd love to hear all yeah. any and all feedback. Um, let us know on Instagram, contact at panelism.inc. And then you can find all our podcasts, uh, by searching panelism, wherever you find podcasts, we're on Spotify, we're on Google play, we're on Apple podcasts, all of the rest. We've got some other shows too, that we've either produced or worked on over the years. All of it's there. Panelism.inc, panelism.inc. And, uh, it's kind of, I mean, that's, that's basically it. I'm, oh, I'm man. so glad. I'm so glad we read March. Oh my God. It's, it's this, this was a fulfilling, uh, in many, many ways pick. And it's just, I, I'm glad you were willing to read it with me. And, and I, I Oh yeah. Take. And like I said, like I've, I've already put this on the wish list for so many people not in a, uh, a pushy way, of course, but I, I want the children in my life to have a accessible way to read this story and appreciate its power. Yeah. Yeah. And the adults too. But you know, <laughs> I know there wasn't, this was not told to me as a child. So that's what I hope, hope to give. Yeah. Well, enjoy that those books. Happy reading, and we'll be back next time with more great comics. Until then.